0: Welcome to the Climate Risk Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Hurley, from the consulting firm ICF. On September 9th, 2020, The Commodity Futures Trading Commission, an independent agency of the U.S. government, published a report entitled Managing Climate Risk in the U.S. Financial System. The report concluded that climate change poses major risks to the stability of the U.S. financial system, and it provides 53 specific recommendations for reducing those risks. The report was unanimously approved by the Commission's 34-member Climate Risk Subcommittee, which includes members from financial, agricultural, and energy markets, the banking and insurance sectors, data and intelligence service providers, the environmental and sustainability public policy sector, and academia. To learn more about this report and its findings, we talked with Jesse Keenan, one of the report's editors. Dr. Keenan is an associate professor and social scientist at the School of Architecture at Tulane University, where he leads courses and seminars advancing the interdisciplinary fields of sustainable real estate and urban development. His research focuses on the intersection of climate change adaptation in the built environment, including aspects of design, engineering, regulation, planning, and financing. So what was the impetus behind this CFTC report? So how did climate risk sort of bubble up to the top as an issue for the commission's attention?
1: Well, I think the reason that the CFTC decided to take this on is a reflection of several things. One, climate change is an inescapable phenomenon as it relates to its impacts uh, on global economies, supply chains, valuations of assets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so um, particularly for the CFTC, um, which deals in futures, options, derivatives, um, an enormous market. Um, far exceeding the size of any equity market, for instance, these types of forward-looking behaviors are consistent with the challenges of forward-looking behavior as it associates with uh, understanding climate change. But at the but at the same time, it's a present phenomenon. It's a present challenge. Climate change is already with us. So in that regard, there are several things happening. One is that after the Paris Accords central bankers and prudential regulators uh, um, of economies got together, uh, but for the United States, and created something called the Network for Greening the Financial System. And this is a bit of a nebulous thing many people have never heard about, but I would argue it's probably the most consequential body of global governance uh, that there is as it relates to climate change, in part because they are rewriting the rules of how we think about sustainability, what's green, what's brown, what's the gray, gray area there in terms of assets and levels of performance and their associated impact uh, on climate change in both terms of climate mitigation, reducing greenhouse gases, as well as climate adaptation. It's an enormous effort that's going to shape our global economy. The United States has not been a part of that, but for some minor participation by the state of New York, as well as an emerging observer role for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And, of course, uh, just in this year, uh, it was acknowledged that it was very likely that the uh, Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve would also be joining. But in the past year, this has been really brewing um, in the absence of the United States. So I think that's one sort of global top-down component. Another global component of this has been the Task Force for Climate Financial Disclosure, TCFD, which I think is among many disclosure systems that has probably risen to the top in terms of standardization. And it's moved very quickly to engage trillions of dollars of assets or assets under management in a significant part or component of our economy, global economy. And that standardization is moving quickly, again, in the absence of federal leadership and engagement on many fronts. The other component of it, I would say, is a sort of groundswell from the bottom up which is that many investors, asset managers, have increasingly been looking for guidance and greater resolution domestically with the United States. And, of course, the failure um, and really the overt uh, policy disposition of the Trump administration to stand in the way of, um, let's say, allowing greater access, to a greater diversity of funds, products, and financial services that is driving sustainable investment. Uh, And whether that's your 401k or whether that's a pension fund, um, you know, where do these fiduciary duties rest? Another component of this is a concept that I put forward and coined for broader public discourse, which is the idea of the climate intelligence arms race. So in the context of all of this, both top-down and global, we have a tremendous arms race, if you will, to understand and to measure and ultimately leading to disclosure. And we can talk about that climate phenomenon. And environmental phenomenon as it relates to exposure, sensitivity, adaptive capacity of markets, assets, supply chains, network, et cetera, et cetera. So we're getting better intelligence about how climate change is shaping and shifting the world, particularly the financial economy. So I think the confluence of all of these things, the technology, the governance, the demand from consumers really could not be ignored any further. And Commissioner Benham, uh, one of the commissioners, uh, indeed appointed by uh, Trump, took the step to bring this idea to the commission and to empanel a group of uh, experts to proceed with researching and ultimately producing uh, what is really the penultimate and first of its kind report from a U.S. financial regulator on fundamentally what does it mean to manage risk in the U.S. financial system. And in many ways, this is an exercise in domesticating global knowledge, but also working within the unique American vernacular of things that are unique to our markets and our, our, our way of regulation about what we can do to not just transform the system of regulation, but calibrate it and work within existing loads of regulation. So there's different transformations that need to happen uh, in terms of investing or a transition to a net zero economy. But there's much that we can do on the margins that are minor, that are technical, that really add up and and really matter in many ways. And so we have a lot of very detailed prescriptions and recommendations in this work that get to that level of technical specificity. Again, really a first of its kind.
0: It's, it's interesting to me that this is coming out of a commission that focuses on futures and derivatives, because I think to most people, they would think that would really be have a, a more short-term focus than the kind of longer-term focus of climate change. But as you mentioned, this is a here and now problem. And I'm wondering if you could give us some examples of ways in which climate change could affect the financial markets that will affect futures and other derivatives including both the impacts of climate change itself, as well as the effects of actions that are aimed at reducing emissions?
1: So let me say this, that one of the great benefits or liberties that we had in producing this work uh, was that we were not limited to the regulatory domain of the CFTC. Uh, We had liberties to look across a variety of stakeholders and regulatory bodies and agencies so, we didn't limit this to the realm of the CFTC. Uh, we really looked at everything from the Labor Department to the SEC uh, to the Federal Reserve to the FDIC. We looked at really a broad range of things. But to your question, you know, first of all, derivatives and futures and the like and many similar instruments um, have been long utilized to hedge environmental risk. And as again, we get better information about how climate impacts are manifesting in not just first order, but second and third order relationships and impacts as it begins to diffuse within a risk or subsystematic or systematic ways. We see innovation in these types of products and in, in how they're being utilized in the market. And so there is innovation there. Um, I think when you look at commodities, food supply chain, even things like mortgages, where you have a very close nexus between physical risk and its associated impact on accelerated material degradation or depreciation or asset impairment with physical items and goods, it's probably the most clear way that people can draw these connections. So when we have extended periods of extreme heat that, uh, well, let me give you an example of how this can work systematically. We can have droughts that impact the Midwest in terms of uh, cereals and grains production um, that increases uh, the necessity to uh, draw out more groundwater pump more water, which, by the way, has a huge energy cost and, 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 and eats into your bottom line at the other end of the equation in terms of primaries production. But then you start thinking, well, um, what happens when the Mississippi has too low of water to bring these goods to market, right? And barges can't, and you can't have sufficient river traffic. And this works the other way, too, when you have too much rain and you can't get seeds to the market in the spring. Uh, and so when you start thinking about it, not just in terms of, okay, droughts, one thing, but how do we think about logistics? How do we think about supply chain? A number of years ago, a forest fire took down one of the largest warehouses for hops, uh, and the impact that that had on beer and beer making in the United States. Um, so <laughs> you can start seeing the extent to which climate change is impacted, not just primary production, but uh, networks associated with logistics and uh, production that are wide scale. And this, of course, all is manifested in, in prices that people pay and foods and other goods. So it's a, there's a lot of impacts. There's a lot of systematic relationships. You know, if you are a lender or a regional lender who's, uh, you know, investing in these markets, you have a fair amount of concentrated risk, for instance, uh, when you have uh, entire assets that are challenged. And that may be an entire book of loans to a certain type of particular market that's geographically concentrated. And that may represent uh, a certain measure of risk in its own right. So, you know, measures of stability and underwriting and credit underwriting in the past, in some sectors, uh, may no longer be hold true. You know, that stationarity, that worldview of a certain stationarity is, I think, upended when we think about the dynamic nature of human environmental conflict and relationships uh, in the face of climate change.
0: And what about the transitional risks, so like, you know, the effects of, of a shift towards the net zero system?
1: Yeah, well, well, let me tell you this. I mean, think about what's going on right now with Boeing. And Boeing is really foreseeing a, a decline in production of aircraft. And this is really the convergence of three risks, right? It's the convergence of technological risk and how they coded out the 737 MAX. Uh, so that's a technological risk. There's a pandemic risk, uh, uh, which is more or less a natural hazards peril. You can uh, associate that uh, in the environmental terms of a pandemic, uh, also human-caused in a way. Or managed or mismanaged. Uh, so that's impacting air travel. Then you also have a climate risk uh, with air travel in the sense that, that you have changing consumer preferences. People are more cognizant of the carbon footprint of travel. And so that doesn't just impact airlines, particularly when they are being impacted by these other hazards and uh, economic impacts. It impacts things like Boeing. And of course, Boeing has thousands of contractors, subcontractors and suppliers throughout the United States and the world that uh, are engaged and very reliant on that flow of capital and production. So, you know, here we are with such a massive impact in a particular sector. In fact, so large, it's, it's shaping our uh, imbalance of trade. And so uh, that's one example of a changing consumer preferences being amplified or amplifying rather risks and effects um, from other types of uh, hazards and perils, uh, and that confluence is quite real. I think when you look at this and think about it, you can take just about any sector and you can think about how changing consumer preferences are impacting pricing, both in positive and negative ways. And that's going to drive not just transitional risk, but it's also going to drive opportunities. And I think it's worth reflecting that a lot of times we contextualize risk as the sort of primary orientation uh, risk, and that is uncertainty because risk is probabilistic. But if we often think about the sort of negative consequences of climate, we also have to recognize the positive opportunistic aspects of climate change, uh, where we have an opportunity to get it right to think in more sustainable and perhaps, you could argue, less impactful terms, or more impactful, perhaps, if it's social impact. So I think that in many ways, we have to diversify our orientation of risk and really understand um, that there are opportunistic elements here, and that, indeed, transition risk is a way to begin to see both sides of that same coin.
0: So uh, another issue, another risk that was highlighted in the report was what they call, what you call, subsystemic shocks. And I'm just wondering if you could explain what that means and which kinds of sectors or communities might be most affected.
1: Sure. So systematic shocks uh, reflect something that is in many ways has many different attributes of being uh, arguably controllable or lacking in its ability to control or diffuse or to even fully understand or measure. Um, It reverberates and diffuses risk in ways that are in many ways difficult to understand and to have intelligence around. And so we think about things like the October 2008, systematic reverberations associated with credit among global financiers and banking and investment entities. Um, We think of that as reaching a penultimate point of a shock, a moment, a a credit freeze and squeeze at the same time. But when you're also thinking about climate change, you have to recognize that there are both spatial and geographic orientations as well as non-spatial orientations to the concentration of capital. And a lot of times we think in terms of global capitalism, that it's non-spatial, right? That, that, and indeed, most, obviously, most money and value, particularly in things like derivatives, are external to any spatial or geographic orientation, um, but for perhaps where people's tax, uh, country of tax election may be. Nonetheless, there's a flip side of that. And because we generally think of money and financial system in non-spatial terms, there's also a spatial dimension to it. Which is that there are concentrations regionally, uh, of capital and at risk capital that represent subsystematic risk in the sense that they're, for instance, coastal housing markets, uh, and let's say regional to local lenders who have mortgages on the books, uh, mortgages or assets that they haven't passed on to the secondary market may not just be mortgages, may also be lines of credit and other, um, debt and investment products in local economies that are at risk from uh, greater inundation events, uh, rain and precipitation inundation events as well, sea level rise, any number of coastal hazards, you know, all of that is going to challenge and impair those assets. And that leads to a certain concentration of risk uh, that indeed may be regional, but it may be subsystematic in the sense that it also influences or has impact on um, let's say a scenario where there may have to be greater capital reserves to account for this uh, level of impairment or potential impairment. Uh, and that has an impact on uh, reducing capital availability for things like small businesses or manufacturing or other allied uh, components of the economy that are reliant on access to more local or regional sources of capital. So that may not be widely diffused in terms of global capitalism and uh, undermining um, systematic or globally systematic markets, but it may be subsystematic to the extent that there is a, a more uh, resolute, more localized, if not regional orientation of that concentration of risk.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So then in terms of financial regulators and financial institutions, what, what's, what are some of the steps that they should be thinking about taking now to, to prepare for these risks?
1: Well, I think regulators are caught in negotiating a very difficult world where the market is increasingly demanding greater action and greater consistency and greater recognition of the scale and the scope of the problem technology is emergent, but it's not fully there. Um, in many ways, one of the greatest measure of momentum that we have in terms of global financial economies addressing climate change is the translation of measurement, measurement science, as well as the management side of this into modes of disclosure that create measures of disclosure and public access and transparency, but also reflects Um, a certain protection of proprietary nature of that information. And it leads to this question of materiality. What is the material nature of what we need to disclose? And I think that that question is a difficult question that varies by sector, it varies by asset, um, and it's really at the heart of where we are in terms of thinking about disclosure but disclosure among other avenues of opportunity and momentum is is really critically important because it's at that moment that i think regulators have something tangible or empirical from which they can base future regulatory ambitions on so the question it's a bit of a chicken egg like what comes first the information about physical and transition risk, or does the regulation happen? I think what we call for, in a way, is greater collaboration between sectors to begin standardizing and uh, standard development that begins to give greater recognition or greater definition and resolution to some really core concepts associated with physical and transition risk, climate risk writ large, as well as basic ideas of sustainability. What does it mean to invest in sustainability? What, At what point does a, an asset cross a threshold, scope one, two, and now with greater dialogue now with Scope 3 emissions, you know, at what point do you cross that threshold and something becomes ostensibly green, right? How do we set those benchmarks? All of this, I think, requires a greater dialogue leading towards standardization. Now, you can move too quickly in terms of standardization, and that can represent its own type of political and transition risk in its own right. But I think that we have to begin that process, and I think that regulators really have to lead, uh, lead by example, of course, um, but lead in terms of driving that home. And that's an opportunity for the National Academy of Sciences. That's an opportunity for investment banks, global financiers, stakeholders in the financial markets, clearinghouses, and, and being led together with a, a consortium of uh, particularly U.S. financial regulators so that we can advance this standardization. But I think you know it has to happen in parallel with disclosure, among other things, so that we can have an empirical foundation and a factual basis from which we can rest you know regulation or calibrate or advance new regulations. And that's a little bit tricky, right? Because you know, if we you know at what point in time do we have a measure of precautionary principle applied to our regulation? Um, and historically in the United States, our regulation goes in the other direction. It's not really based on precautionary principles, it's based on science and facts. But there's going to be a lag between climate measurement and and the science and how it impacts financial markets. So at what point in time do we kind of shift gears in our global mindset about uh, financial regulation to impose a precautionary set of, well, principles, frankly, from which we can create some room there, uh, a margin of safety, if you will, um, to addressing uh, climate risk. But anyway, I'll stop there, but I think there's a lot happening. There's a lot of momentum, but those are the sort of two principled areas of Uh, standards development and disclosure that I think are going to converge in a very productive way.
0: And what are some of the barriers? What are some of the factors that are standing in the way of financial institutions' ability to
1: to measure and manage their their
0: climate-related financial risks?
1: Well, I think one component of this is, is internal communications and education. I think across, and this is a human capital problem, uh, across the various sectors and participants and regulatory entities and agencies, you know, we just don't have a great recognition of the value of, or a great recognition of understanding of science in in, in, in in very broad terms. You know, we need better education about what is climate change science, how climate change impacts the world, but also uh, interacts with other aspects of global change, changing technology, labor force, artificial intelligence, biodiversity loss, inequality. You know, how do these things interact in in a rate of change that's hard to keep up with? And I think that requires greater education in terms of what is sustainability, what is climate resilience or engineering resilience, disaster resilience. Ecological resilience. What is transformative adaptation? You know, these words and these concepts that people throw around have, haphazardly, actually have precise meaning and precise analytical modes from which we can have more informed uh, decision making. Um, yet, many people are still operating in largely rhetorical terms. So, I think we need an investment in human capital. We need an investment in people to um, to be educated and to have an ongoing dialogue about where science and applied science and social science can help inform uh, decision-making. But at the end of the day, we also have to acknowledge that science isn't going to make the decisions for us, that much of what we need to make going forward is latent with judgment and is centered on judgment. It's ultimately centered on leadership. So I think more than anything, what we need is true leadership um, that balances empiricism, precautionary principles, uh, and the consensus a well-informed consensus of industry and in the private sector um, to, to really lead this and push this forward. And I think that's what we sorely lack now as leadership on many fronts, that I think that that uh, is certainly a major impediment. Now, there are certain sectors um, that may be inclined to impede this progress of what needs to happen, more or less, because of their own transitional risk, their own stranded assets, their own inability to perhaps participate or even be economically viable as we transition to a net zero economy. And they will throw up their own screens of information and misinformation. I mean, let's not forget here that we, at least in the United States and much of the West, are in the middle of a hybrid warfare with Russia, and that climate change is very much part of the war of misinformation. I mean, there are millions of bots out there producing misinformation about climate change that indeed shapes public opinion and public perception about what the problems and solutions are. Uh, you know, why would Russia, as a nation state, uh, want to you know not only fight the hybrid warfare but do so in terms of climate change? They're a major oil producer, right? They have their own vested national security and economic interests in thwarting consensus and global momentum in climate change. So we really have to think at the level of people and human dimensions of this, the leadership dimensions of this, I think what we can acknowledge now, and I think what the CFTC work represents is that the private sector is ready to go. The private sector is, I can't say fully mobilized, but they're largely mobilized in favor of greater certainty uh, and greater political momentum to push this forward. Uh, and I think that that's critically important. It's critically important where we are now in the current election uh, season. And it's, it also resonates on a global sphere of national security and competitiveness as we face a new and changing world.
0: Are there efforts underway or being planned to implement some of those recommendations? Sort of like, what are the next steps from from here?
1: Well, I think, you know, and I'm going to limit this commentary primarily in in an entirely domestic sense and really put the onus on Congress here. I think that what you see is that much of this work, I can't say is drawn upon, but runs parallel to the ambitions and the thinking, uh, particularly in the Senate, of a number of deals and, uh an ongoing conversation on the Hill about how the regulatory realm can be calibrated and uh, shifted to address climate risk and, frankly, climate opportunity. I think it's also part of the fiscal stimulus uh, dialogue. I think probably not to the extent that one would argue it probably could or should be, especially when you compare fiscal stimulus in the EU and ECB and elsewhere and the extent to which they are making really large investments in sustainability. I think in the United States, that would entirely make sense, particularly when you're talking about mobilizing uh, a workforce and a labor force and having them engaged in the process of making these investments. I mean, just take buildings alone and the impact that we can have on uh, weatherizing and advancing uh, retrofits of buildings for greater energy efficiency. The PV workforce now, many times the size of the coal workforce, um, what would it mean if we had a, uh, an investment in housing and sustainable and energy efficient housing? We, we could, frankly, mobilize a very large workforce and train and develop skills and education. So, you know, that's part of it, but it's probably not where we need to be. Um, But nonetheless, sustainable investment uh, and mobilizing that for a net zero transition allied with matters of fiscal policy are critically important. Um, I think within the agencies themselves, there is greater recognition of what needs to happen. I think that many advisory groups and uh, internal dialogues have been churning in the same direction particularly at the Federal Reserve, which I think has been scoping this issue for a number of years and has really come to an understanding or a greater understanding of the scope of the problem as well as the potential solutions. And I think that that's probably true in the OCC and the Treasury Department and many other areas of of the government. So, you know, it's going to take years to not just scope the problem, but to train people, to educate people to think and begin to see climate impacts um, as they are diffused systematically, or you could argue subsystematically. And so it takes time. Uh, and I think we're at such a nascent stage of the acceleration of climate and climate impacts that it's going to take uh, a number of years for this to really hit home. But uh, I think we're heading in the right direction. I actually feel quite optimistic that, the, that we have the people in place and that we have enough momentum. Because in many ways, if there's one thing that you, uh, is sort of unique to the American model of regulation is that industry can drive and can self-define some measure of its own regulation or a regulatory sphere that I think works for some but maybe not for all. And I think when we think about the context of inequality and, and other challenges that we face, I think that there's a recognition that public and private stakeholders have to work together, if anything, to build the political momentum, um, not just for, not obviously for self regulation, but for more finite public regulation. That is going to help steer markets. But let me put this another way, in more plain spoken terms, which is that, you know, okay, the SEC comes out and says that we need to have all climate change impacts are material or whatever they could be material is really what they need to, th- how they need to think about it. And companies start, you know, disclose, publicly traded companies that fall under the SEC's jurisdiction start, you know, disclosing climate impacts or whatever. But, like, you know, that's already happening on some measure. There's already measures of accountability that the markets are imposing on themselves. Now, is it complete? Is it as thorough as it needs to be? Absolutely not. But I bring that up because, and I, it, It's not to mean that that's a substitute for regulation. I don't mean that at all. But I guess where I feel optimistic is that the markets are already beginning to impose this discipline on themselves. And I think that that's a necessary step because it's going to give the regulators the tools to take it to the next step. And I think that's what we can feel optimistic about.
0: Thanks again to Jesse Keenan for talking with us for this podcast. If you're interested in climate risk and would like to learn more, please subscribe to the podcast. You can follow along as we explore this topic in more depth.